Good evening, and thank you for coming out on such a cold night. Should we vote online? There's a general law of journalism that if, if there's a question mark in the headline, the answer is no. <laughs> um, but that's not my starting point. I, I proposed this lecture originally because of the amount of controversy around the, the area. People say, well, we bank online, and, and they say quietly to each other, and frankly, my money's worth more to me than my vote, so what's, what's the problem? Um, and many com countries have conducted trials, as we shall see, in online voting, and taken various decisions as a, as a consequence. And as I have dug into it more, I've found that it's a more complex issue than I had expected, and a more interesting one. So I'm, I'm hoping that you'll find it interesting. I'm hoping there'll, there'll be a good discussion at the end, because I'm sure I've missed some points, uh, and I look forward to being told what they are. And I'm sure there are quite a lot of issues that are, that are worth discussing here, because I don't think the answer is as clear-cut as I thought it was when I started. These are the principles of what a democratic election should be, according to the Venice Commission, which is the, the Council of Europe Commission for Democracy. And the basic notions are that, that elections should be universal, they should be equal, they should be free, they should be secret, and they should be direct. And what that means is that, in principle, all humans should should be able to vote, they should be universal. You can obviously introduce um, particular limitations on that, that that are fair in the right context. Um, obviously, ha having a, a minimum um, age for voting is, is perfectly sensible. You, you, you don't want democracy in the hands of four-year-olds, for example. Um, and it should be universal, not, not just in terms of everybody can vote, but everybody should have the same opportunity to vote. Everybody should, should be able to stand as a candidate. Equality in that way and, and freedom in that way. So the state authorities mustn't get in the way. They must make it as, as uh, easy for people to vote as possible. They should uh, try to control fraud. They shouldn't over-influence the result. Um, the election should be secret. Um, secret voting under the Commission's charter is, is both a, a right and a duty. So firstly, you have a right to keep your vote secret, but also you have a duty to keep it secret. And they go as far as to say that if a vote is revealed, it should not be counted. So uh, those of you who, who rush out and immediately tweet who you voted for, your, your vote ought to be struck off on that basis. And it's, it's one of the fundamental things in UK elections. The UK has had a secret ballot since 1872. Uh, and... You may have noticed when, when you're voting in person in a, in a, uh, a polling booth, in a, in a polling station, that actually there's, there's a number stamped on the voting paper that you use. And, and that's the, the so-called corresponding number list, which was introduced to try to reduce fraud so that it is possible actually to trace every vote back 
to the voter to whom that voting slip was issued, because when you get the um, the ballot paper, that number is is recorded against who you are, uh, and so our ballot isn't in fact strictly secret, but. The, the law says that it requires the intervention of a court to un unlock and use the corresponding number list. It's got to be done under the supervision of a judge. And there are criminal penalties for, for abusing the fact that the, that the ballot is not, in fact, completely secret. And finally, the, the ballot must be direct. It's not a matter of electing people who elect people. You're, you're electing directly into a position of, of authority in your primary chamber. And so one of the chambers of your main parliament has to be directly elected by the people according to, to these principles. So we signed up for that. So so many other countries, um, the same principles exist more or less in the European Convention on Human Rights as well. So they're, they're fairly generally agreed principles. If we're going to vote online, we need to be able to do these things. Otherwise, we've got ourselves into a bit of a, a legal conundrum. And democracy depends on elections, self-evidently. And this is the UK's current voting system. Um, the... The, the problem is that um, we're not getting enough people voting. In, in the UK, most people over 18 are entitled to, to register to vote. That's 47 million people, as you can see. But only a fraction of those people do, in fact, register. And only a fraction of those registering do, in fact, vote. And the net outcome is that the participation, even in parliamentary elections... Is, is relatively low. It means that the, the winning party is not likely to get 50% of the electorate voting for them. And in local elections, of course, the participation is, is even lower. So what do, we, what do we want from an electoral system? This is the, the definition that was put together by a group of people in America... Uh, the National Academy of uh, National Academies of, of Science, Engineering and Medicine put together a, uh, a paper, a research paper on electronic voting at the request of the federal government. And, and their definition of a trusted election is, is this one, which seems perfectly sensible, but it's extremely difficult to deliver. And that's one of the key themes of, of this talk, that... Actually delivering this, which, which seems self-evidently what you're looking for, uh, is actually remarkably hard. And before we can look at how well a voting system works, it's worth looking at the risks and the threats. And these are the ones that I've come up with. Uh, if I've missed any then I'd, I'd really like to hear about them at the end because it would, be, it would be interesting to collect as many of the threats as possible because they will ultimately drive the requirements set for an online voting system if, if we introduce one. But it's quite a, a rich set of threats. 
you, you can register the wrong people or you can exclude some people from standing as candidates or some groups of people, some, some um, particular ethnic minority, for example, um, if they can be deterred from voting or prevented from registering to vote or registering to stand or, or actually voting, then you're compromising your, your election. Um, votes get stolen, votes get coerced. Sometimes votes get even sold. Um, there's the violation of the secret ballot, of course, which we've mentioned already. There's the possibility that the count goes wrong and is wrongly manipulated or, or simply erroneous. Or anything else that causes people to think that actually the election wasn't fair and therefore the result can't be trusted. And to an extent, you could say that the, the primary audience who have to be satisfied that the election was fair is actually the losing group, the losing candidates, the losing party. Because if they're not satisfied that it was fair, then you get a lot of, of difficulty in the country because they will, will start campaigning for a new election. They, you, you get factionalism that destabilises democracy. Current UK voting system is more complex than, than this. This is, is essentially how it is. It differs in different parts of the UK at the age at which you can register and the age at which you can vote. Um, you can vote in, in person by post or, or by proxy, um, not currently online, except in some elections if the returning officer were to choose to say that you could. Uh, but that's a complexity you'll find in the, in the transcript. And again, I should say that the things that I say, some of them may, may seem surprising, and in particular the surprising ones you'll find are referenced in the transcript, so you can follow them up and, and discover that I'm not just making this up as I go along. The current UK voting system actually differs for all the different sorts of elections. The, the, um, who is actually allowed to vote, for example, in a European election differs from in a, an election to UK Parliament. And again, all the details of that you'll find in the transcript. Looking at postal voting, anyone can apply to vote by post, anyone who's, who's registered to be able to vote at all. It's very easy to understand. The, the postal voting mechanism is straightforward, so it's, it's easy to explain to people. But it has weaknesses. There, there have been some very significant frauds using postal voting. Um, there was a famous one in, in 2004 in Birmingham where half the votes for the winning candidates were said to be fraudulent. And um, wonderfully, the election commissioner who was ruling on this said that the scale of fraud would disgrace a banana republic. And that's quite a strong condemnation of our postal voting system as it was in, in 2004. But even in 2004, postal voting was accepted. It didn't lead to people saying, we must stop postal voting. So one question immediately is, does that set a benchmark for the level of fraud that we're prepared to tolerate and therefore how concerned we should be about the security of online voting, for example? And that's something perhaps we can discuss later. This, this shows the actual levels of 
fraud that have turned up in the courts. Uh, there was a, another major fraud in, in 2008 in Slough. Um, it was the, the same QC who was acting as the election commissioner who investigated that one, and, and he said that uh, to ignore the probability that fraud is widespread, particularly in local elections, is a policy that even an ostrich would despise. He's a man with a real, real flair for, for punchy words to get into the newspapers. But as you can see, there is ongoing, continuing fraud in certainly local elections, and, and people are caught, and you have to assume that there's more fraud than ever gets detected and, and prosecuted. So a change was made in the registration process, um, partly because it seemed antiquated to have the original process where the, the quotes, head of the household, uh, listed on a, on a form all the people who lived in that household at a particular date and who were of the age where they were entitled to a vote or to, to register for a vote. Um, and the notion of you know, who was the head of the household or even that there was a head of a household or even necessarily a household was starting to feel inappropriate in a modern society. But more importantly, it was seen that it was an opportunity for fraud, that people could be registered who didn't in fact exist. And there were some egregious cases of that, um, some, some households where there were very large numbers of people who were registered at single addresses, far more than were, were actually uh, likely to be living in, in um, such a, a small house at that particular time. So what, what happened was that individual electoral registration was introduced. Individuals now register and... In order to do it, you have to provide enough detail that your registration can be checked against the DWP's register, national insurance numbers and dates of birth. And if you can't provide the appropriate data for that check to be done, then the returning officer comes back to you and asks for more data, passports, um, utility bills, the, the usual identity documentation that shows that you really are a, a real person who has, has a real existence and the right to, to vote in elections. So that process has been introduced and these, this is a graph of the number of people who, who were uh, registering to vote the, the red is people who chose to do that digitally, to do it online, and the, and the blue is people who were registering to vote using paper. And as you would expect, once the online option was available to people to register to vote, it was, it was very widely used. Um, the peaks, of course, are shortly before votes. I mean, the, the peak on the right is, is just before Brexit uh, referendum. The, uh, the others are, are directly in, in front of, uh, of national elections because that's what triggers people to, to, uh, to get registered and that's what causes local uh, activist groups to um, work to, to try and make sure that all the, all the voters in their area or at least all the ones that they think might vote for them are actually registered. So you get these, these peaks unsurprisingly. And, and this is the effect that it had. Um, the, the Electoral Commission 
um, measures accuracy and completeness. Accuracy is that there are no false entries on, on the register, uh, by which they really mean that, that the people on the register are in fact living at the addresses that are listed on the register. And completeness, uh, which is what proportion of the people who are in fact eligible to be on the register are actually on the register. And as you can see, it didn't have a massive impact. It, it had a, a certain improvement in, uh, in, in the levels, but, but not a, an absolutely huge transformative um, impact on, on the electoral register. The, the issue really is that people move house. And so it is actually quite difficult when you, when you register somebody at one time and check um, the, the accuracy of the register at another time, you will find that people have moved, in particularly young people. And, and the same is, is true for completeness, because if, if you're, you're known to exist and you don't register, you, you get chased by the uh, returning officer and, and they send you a form to fill in to register to vote. And Again, young people typically can't be traced because they are much more mobile as, as part of the population. So a lot of the people who are missing from the register or who, who seem in, in one way not to be properly represented are in fact uh, younger people in, in the population. Now there's, there's quite a lot of work goes on, quite a lot of consultations and discussions about electronic voting and it's it's a, a common um, conflation of ideas that people talk about electronic voting and, and are heard to be talking about online voting when in fact they're talking about something much broader than that. Or they use the phrase electronic voting when they really just mean online voting, forgetting that there are other forms of electronic voting. Um, in the United States, for example, it's very common to have digital systems in polling booths in polling stations because the American elections are quite complex. You have a lot of choices to make. You know, if you're electing your, your mayor and your head of police and you're voting on, on um, 16 constitutional amendments in, in your state. And so having an electronic system that enables you to, to do that voting makes the voting easier and of course it makes the counting very much faster because now you've got a complex set of input that is going to need to be counted accurately. And so the introduction of electronic systems is a, a natural response to that. Uh, it has caused a lot of controversy, particularly amongst computer scientists in, in the United States, because um, I mean, there was one notorious case where the, uh, the, the man who was running, the manufacturer of the leading um, voting electronic voting system declared that he was going to do everything in his power to ensure that the Republicans were elected, for example, which led to a certain amount of concern. And, and certainly the, the software that has been certified in some of those voting machines has turned out not to be the same software that was actually running in them on, on election day. There have been issues like that in, in the United States. But that's one form of electronic voting and it's it's one that obviously could be considered and has been considered and is being considered in the United Kingdom. Once you're doing that you can you can move your polling booths around much more easily. 
Um, and one idea is that you set them up where people are rather than getting people to go to where the, where the voting machines are. So you put them in supermarkets and places like that in the hope of getting a higher proportion of, of people voting. Uh, then you, you start to move to online voting using a PC or a tablet or a, or a smartphone. And once you're doing electronic voting, you're almost certainly doing electronic counting. Now, I'm mostly going to be talking about, about the online voting because that was what I advertised and I'd be talking under false pretenses if I started talking too much about the other things, but it's worth just expressing that context. And we've had a number of trials in the UK of, of electronic voting. In 2007, a million and a half voters in, in a number of local council areas were given differing opportunities to, to vote depending on, on their local area. Um, telephone voting, online voting, voting in mobile polling stations and, and so on. The, the trials were not wonderfully successful. You, you'll find a, a write-up about what happened. Um, in fact, there's a couple of, of analyses of what happened that I reference in the transcript and you, you can follow. It's fairly clear that the trials were under-resourced. So a whole range of things went wrong. You know, machines broke down and um, council officers weren't able to open the doors to the places where, where the machines were for various reasons. All, all the kind of administrative problems that you might expect for, a, for an under-resourced trial occurred. But despite those things occurring, the Electoral Commission felt that that, that didn't destroy... The, the validity of the trials that have been carried out, that it was, it was a good exercise and, and useful results. So they said that they were successful, but that problems remain, particularly with, with security, uh, with the transparency of, of what was happening, and therefore the degree to which people could trust it, and the capacity of local authorities to maintain control over the elections, the administrative issues I've been talking about. And their recommendation was no further electronic voting until those problems have been resolved. Um, and there's nothing on the Electoral Commission's website that suggests that they do now believe that those problems have been resolved. That's not to say they haven't been, simply that, that as far as I can see, there's no, no evidence that the uh, Electoral Commission would say that they have. This is the international position, or, or it, it was some years ago when this, this um, chart was produced. And it's, it's an interesting range. A, a number of com countries have experimented with, with electronic voting. The USA and Sweden ran pilots and decided not to continue. Um, that's, that's the blue there. Uh, Canada, Australia and France offer electronic voting for some people in some elections. And uh, typically it's, it's groups, for example, um, soldiers posted overseas uh, get the opportunity to vote electronically because it's seen as impractical to expect them to come back to a, a school in a remote part of France in order to be able to cast a vote. So... That happens, but, it, but it's limited. It's not, not available to, to the entire population by any means. 
Um, at the time this was produced, Norway and India were running trials. I've traced the Norway trial. That was, that was stopped partway through because, firstly, there were security fears and it became very controversial. Uh, and secondly, it was already apparent that one of the primary reasons why they were conducting the trial, which was that they thought it would increase participation, wasn't, wasn't happening. Uh, and so they could see that, that from that point of view, the trial had already determined what it was trying to determine. Um, Spain actually adopted electronic voting and, and then stopped, again, for security reasons, I think. Uh, Estonia and I think the United uh, Arab Emirates are still using electronic voting. Estonia is, is the particular poster child of, of online government services. Uh, Estonian citizens have cryptographic smart cards. Everybody has an ID card, which is a cryptographic smart card. And they have readers that plug into PCs that enable them to use the smart cards to identify themselves online. So lots of services have been um, made available using that form of identification. Fairly recently, uh, they suffered a, a fairly significant security breach of, of the cryptography on the, on the smart cards. And it, there is, again, I've referenced it in the, in the transcript, there was a, an independent review of the most recent election that was carried out um, using, using these smart cards and, and online voting. And the independent reviewers were really quite scathing about the... Um, the, the security of, of the systems. They found a lot of reasons why the, the system really wasn't as secure as, as you might imagine it was and as it was, was being presented in Estonia. One of the surprising things, though, that has come out of, of all this international work, as, as far as I can find, wherever I look, is that it doesn't increase the, the turnout for, for the election. It doesn't increase voter participation. Uh, and I think some of the, the non-governmental organisations in this space think that you know, voter apathy is, is not because people find it very difficult and inconvenient to go to polling stations. It's actually because they don't think that their vote's going to make any difference or they don't care. So um, maybe... Maybe going down the online voting route in order to increase um, the turnout and, and make elections more representative is, is not actually yet underpinned by enough evidence. There have been a lot of consultations and, and uh, reports on electoral reform because of the concern about low turnout primarily. And... Um, here's, here's some of them. The, the, all, the, all the UK law commissions in, in, each, of the, in the, um, each of the UK countries, they have separate uh, electoral uh, commissions and, and law commissions, and, and they combined to carry out a, a report on electoral reform which included online voting. They reported in, in February 2016, and at the time I was writing this just a month ago, uh, they still hadn't received a response from the government to that report. In, in January 2015, the Speaker launched the outcome of 
this is the Speaker of the House of Commons, launched the outcome of, of the Speaker's um, Commission for Digital Democracy, which started from, from the premise that people expected to be able to vote online. And they, they confirmed that. They did a lot of, of research. People do, it seems, expect to be able to vote online. But they ended up... Um, saying that it, it was a good idea, but that they had concerns about security. And they, they quoted this uh, evidence that they got from, from the Open Rights Group, which I, I will come back to later, that, that voting is a uniquely difficult question for computer science because the system must verify your eligibility to vote. It must know whether you've already voted. It must allow for audits and recounts and yet it's got to be able to preserve your anonymity and privacy. And there are no solutions to that that security researchers have yet managed to find, no practical solutions. And the ones that have been put forward, um, the researchers have found flaws in. It, it has become a, a significant topic of academic research, how you can build a voting system that has these, these characteristics because of the problem of being, needing to be able to verify um, so many of, of the characteristics that you need for an election whilst preserving the anonymity and privacy. It's not a challenge that the banks have. Um, they, they rely on the fact that they know who you are in order to be able to, to uh, preserve uh, security, for example. The... The Speaker's Commission, however, recommended strongly that in the 2020 election, which is when, when they produced this, that was, that was the date of the next election because of the five-year year rule. Of course, it's now 2022 because of the, the election that we had. But uh, they said that online voting must, must be available then, although they didn't put forward any solutions to the security problems that they accepted were real problems. And as, as I speak today, um, two of the devolved administrations are actually either consulting or have recently announced trials in the area of, of online voting. So there is still considerable movement towards online voting. It's clear that, that uh, governments feel that there is a need for that, that they have to be able to deliver it, they need to consult on it, they want to trial it. Interestingly, none of the consultations say what they think the properties of an online voting system should be. So I thought I'd have a go. And um, I would be very interested to, to know what I've missed here. So, you know, pay attention, make, make notes, and, and at the end, tell, tell me the things I've overlooked that really will matter if we're going to implement an online voting system. I mean, clearly, it must be difficult to register fake voters and yet easy to register voters. And, and the Electoral Commission essentially says that problem's fixed with the, the online uh, individual voter registration and the fact that there's also a, a paper route that, that does that. So I think we can say that that's a solved problem. Let's at least park it on one side. And then, of course, you've got to authenticate the fact that it's the registered voter who is actually casting the vote. 
that that registered voter is, is entitled to. So you've got to check that the person who's voting is the same as the one who, who registered. It, it's not at all clear how you do that. Um, the, there is the, the, the gov.uk verify system that's used for other forms of, of on, online government services. Whether that's really strong enough for this purpose is not clear to me. The kind of mechanisms that are used, um, for example, by the um, professional societies for, for elections, for, for offices and, and by clubs, where you, you, know, you get a, a two-part, two numbers and you, and you put them both into an online system and, and so it's you know, two passwords and, and then you can log in and cast your vote and, and it lets you cast exactly the right number of votes and then you can't go back and change it. That mechanism is fine for those sorts of elections because they're not hugely important elections, whereas, you know, I think axiomatically we have to accept that a parliamentary election certainly is, is very important. But, of course, it does open the possibility of vote selling. So the moment you've got a, a token that you need to use to say, this is me and, and therefore... Uh, I'm going to cast my vote, you can sell it to somebody else. And so if we're concerned about vote selling, then we can't, we can't just rely on that kind of mechanism. Um, straightforwardly, you should only be able to cast the votes you're entitled to. Um, that's, that's reasonably good. You can't, can't vote twice or, you know, if it's a multiple choice um, vote and, and you're you know, like, a, like a Scottish election, then you, you have the number of votes in the way that you're allowed to vote um, and no, nobody gets more than, than they're entitled to. That's, that's a straightforward property. Um, there is a, an interesting issue here that, that arguably the system should actually let you vote multiple times, but only count the last one. And I'll explain later on why that might be a good, good solution to the, to the coercion problem in, in voting. The voters should be able to check that their vote has actually been counted correctly. I don't know how to do that, because if the system's compromised, it can present compromised evidence to the voter. And I, I don't see a way out of that conundrum. So there's, there's a, a challenge there that, that there may be a cryptographic solution to, but it looks to me as though it's going to be complex and expensive. Then there's recounts. Um, you're casting votes online, you're undoubtedly going to be counting them electronically. I mean, even if you're not, even if you choose, chose to print them out and count them manually, it's still going through an electronic system that is, is a fundamental part of that counting process. So how do you do a recount? There's no point in just, just asking the computer to try again and see if it gets the same answer, um, because firstly, you'd hope it did, and secondly, if, if it didn't, if it was out by even one vote, you'd have to rerun the entire election because it would show that the entire system was flawed. So it, it really isn't clear how you do a recount and, under these circumstances. Um, with a paper vote, it's straightforward. You, you can get the paper ballots recounted under the supervision of the candidates, so the people who really care that this is accurate. 
and, and they can sample particular piles of votes to make sure that, that the votes are, are correct. They can check to see that the votes that have been rejected because they're spoilt or they're ambiguous are in fact spoilt or ambiguous. Very, very difficult for the candidates to exercise that supervision over an electronic count. And it shouldn't be possible to discover how a voter voted. Um, so that's fundamental to the secret ballot. Um, it's, it's not clear how you implement the fraud checking that, that the corresponding number system introduces. Um, given the different opportunities for fraud that an online system presents. So that will simply have to be redesigned as a way of, of ensuring that, that the fraud is, is detected without um, compromising this, this um, secrecy. Uh, item 7 is probably not that important. In, in some areas of the world, abstention is a very, very positive political statement. Uh, and therefore detecting whether somebody has abstained or not um, could, could put them at, at serious risk to, to their safety. So in some environments, it's important that, that you can't discover whether or not a voter has actually voted. And that's one of the things that is in the, the um, Vienna Commission's list. Um, personally, I think we could probably do, do without that, although... Uh, if we if we manage the secret ballot, then it, it should be easy to implement anyway. And then there's the defences against coercion and, and vote selling. There is a, a large degree of concern about what the Electoral Commission calls family voting, where a, a dominant individual in a household coerces all the members of their household to vote the way that they think the vote ought to be cast. Uh, and that obviously undermines democracy and, and distorts the, the ballot. Now, these, these abuses are obviously perfectly possible under, under postal voting. Um, voting in person is, is a really good protection because in the, in the privacy of a, a voting booth where you are there on your own, and then when you're taking a... Uh, a ballot paper with a, with a mark on it, folded over so that nobody can see it and putting it in a locked box, um, it is very hard to coerce uh, a vote that way. But with postal voting, of course, it is, it is straightforward. And so there is the issue as to, to what extent are we prepared to say, well, we tolerate that with postal voting and therefore we shouldn't worry about it in, in an online ballot. This is a point at which being able to vote more than once online could help because you could be coerced into voting, you could genuinely vote in, with somebody looking over your shoulder and then you could go away quite quietly with your smartphone and, and two days later, if you're, you're allowed two days later or two hours later in, on the same day, simply vote again and wipe out the, the vote that was done previously if the system was set up that you could vote multiple times and, and only the last one would be counted. And it's also then a protection against vote selling because anybody buying your vote, uh, even if they could see that you had voted the way that they had paid for, wouldn't know that you didn't go away and change it afterwards. So that could be quite a useful property of this system. And then the cyber attacks. 
Um, nation states interfere in other people's elections. They've always done it and they always will. So we have to accept that that is a realistic threat. Um, and, and you can see it happening uh, in, in recent elections. The uh, US presidential election uh, was substantially um, attacked by, by the Russian government. Um, the, these figures for, for the uh, American election are taken from evidence that Facebook and Twitter gave to Congress. Uh, it's almost certainly an underestimate of the, of the total number because this, these are the numbers that they actually detected. But 120 Russian-backed pages, 80,000 posts received by 29 million Americans directly and, and passed on to a very large number more Americans. Uh, so a, a big number of, of um, interventions that actually did end up um, on the screens of, of individual American voters. Uh, Twitter said they'd, they'd identified 50,000 Twitter accounts that engaged in uh, election-related activity. And, and interestingly, the same Twitter accounts were posting a lot of information, a lot of um, messages, tweets about Brexit in the 48 hours surrounding the, the Brexit referendum, the same Twitter accounts that had been posting the, the American election stuff and which have been traced back to uh, an organisation that is closely associated with, with the Russian government. So cybersecurity is an issue that needs to be taken seriously. Um, cyber attacks were a tier one threat on the national risk assessment and and just last month, the head of the National Cybersecurity Centre, Siren Martin, uh, was quoted as saying that a, a major cyber attack on the UK is a matter of when, not if, and, and particularly singling out elections. Um, this quote in the report in The Guardian, with, with the current state of high alert around elections, I think it makes sense that there are not any current plans to move to electronic voting. That's a pretty strong statement from the head of the National Cyber Security Centre and, uh, and it seems to me quite a stark contrast with the consultations and the trials that are going on in Wales and Scotland. I mean, if the head of the National Cyber Security Centre doesn't think this is sensible, why, why are they wasting time and money um, asking their, their electorate whether they ought to be going down that path and, and even trying it out? And there are various ways in, in which cyber attacks can work. Obviously, at, at one extreme, they can compromise the actual voting system. Uh, and that's a realistic threat. The uh, current belief around the cybersecurity community is that most important systems in, in the national infrastructure have already been compromised by cyber attacks uh, in one way or another. Um, so, you know, there is, there is a serious amount of work go going by, by nation states and, and uh, organised crime into compromising these systems. The, the online voting system certainly wouldn't be immune to that. At, at the other extreme, you, you get, other extreme perhaps, you, you get the, the kind of influencing the, the, the fake news, the fake Twitter accounts, the, the, the stories on Facebook that we saw in the American election. And because Twitter and Facebook have so much personal information about individuals, their ability to target individual ads to individual people 
is is unparalleled. It's it's extraordinary, and we we talked about that in in my lecture last year about are, are you the customer or the product of these online? You know, are they selling you or are they are they providing you with a service or are they selling you as a as a product to somebody else? And of course, if you're not paying for the service, then then the way you're paying for it is that your personal data is being sold to somebody else, typically advertisers. But but if you if you sign up to to be an advertiser you can see that you know if you want to find israeli doctors who live in gateshead they can target it that specifically and if you want want it if you want to narrow it down to people in a particular age range or, or with a particular sexual preference they can do that for you too there there is a very very targeted ability there and so the ability to to sway groups of people who are known to have particular attitudes to get out and vote because it's important is, is very powerfully there. Um, so even the influence side of this, I think, has to be taken as a serious threat. So I'd like, I'd like to move on very quickly now to, to, a, to ask you what you think and, and maybe to have a discussion. But the, the first thing is... In these consultations, what are we trying to achieve by introducing online voting? And these are the things that the Scottish government listed as the things that they were trying to achieve. And, and that was why they, they were holding the consultation. So the first one, interestingly, is certainly not evidence-based. Whether the others really matter is, is something we can discuss. And then there are the problems. There's a cybersecurity issue, of course. You know, would there be more or less error in the, in the voting, uh, fraud, coercion? One, one that I, I worry about a bit is that if we make voting seem a bit like you know, voting on, on um, a UK game show, um, perhaps what we will get is less considered votes. People won't think so hard about what they really want to vote for, who they really want to vote for, which party they really want to vote for. Perhaps we'll, the, the voting will become a lot more, more casual. Um, then there's the secrecy issue. And then there's, there's just a financial issue that big government IT projects are not spectacularly good at coming in on, on budget. And this is, <laughs> this is likely to be uh, a, big, a big national IT system if it has to be done. So it's, it's not clear that it's, it's a good use of, of the money. And, and then, of course, there's, there's a security issue. But, of course, we do a lot of things online. And so I come back to what the Open Rights Group said, that, that actually online voting does have some characteristics that make it uniquely difficult. And there aren't any practical solutions if we want the characteristics of a voting system that I listed at the beginning. Um, but of course, we could say, for example, um, the secret ballot doesn't matter. So if we were prepared to give up secrecy, then we could do a lot more by way of security. So there are trade-offs there. and and. So should we vote online? O over to you. I'm, I'm interested to, to hear what you think. Thank you very much. 